Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman. And you're listening to World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview our guests for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Mark Galliotti, an expert on the Russian security services and the author of Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Mark, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, pleasure. With regard to the title, why Putin's wars? You talk in the book about the wars that Putin has led, the war in Ukraine being the most obvious example and the intervention in support of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. But you also cover the wars in Russia before Putin came to power, the first Chechen war, the second Chechen war as he was coming to power. Georgia in 2008, when he was nominally out of power, or at least subordinate to Dmitry Medvedev. Why Putin's wars? I think two reasons, one bad, one good. The bad reason is, of course, that in a title, having Putin there increases your sales no end. There is also a rather more serious and positive reason is that I do feel that over time, we have actually seen a divergence between Putin and his people. And I think that's a really important point to make. Yes, obviously, I talk about the context in which he came to power with these rather disastrous little conflicts of the 1990s. But if then one looks at his first war, the Second Chechen War, it was an ugly, brutal conflict. But nonetheless, to a large extent, it actually fit the zeitgeist of the moment for the Russian people. They were worried about fragmentation. They were worried about their country falling apart. And at that time, they were actually looking for someone who would reverse what was seen as the increasing sort of fragmentary trends of the 1990s. And so the first chance that Putin had to, in effect, curate his own narrative, his own myth as being one of the great warrior heroes of Russia, even though there's a man who'd never actually done national service, this was his opportunity. But over time, and look, he has been the dominant force, although technically he was prime minister rather than president during the Chechen war, no doubt about who actually was the driving force. And indeed, one of the key military commanders at the time said that when the Georgians started moving their forces, nominal President Medvedev was hesitating 
and someone had to get on the phone to Putin, who at the time was in China, to, in, in his words, kick Medvedev's ass to get him into gear. So, you know, these have all been Putin's wars. But as I said, I think the key thing is, and I think this is such an important point to make at the moment, when there is in the West, I think, quite a worrying trend towards regarding all Russians as being morally responsible for what's happening in Ukraine, which I think is both wrong and politically dangerous. But to actually appreciate the degree to which Putin is increasingly, in my opinion, out of step with his country. One thing that struck me towards the beginning of the book was that you talk about the kind of rot and the corruption that set in, in, in into the culture of the army almost immediately after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And a quite striking example is that in 1993, two naval officers stole some uranium used in a submarine nuclear reactors and tried to sell it on, obviously sparking massive fears, particularly in the West, of the possible leak of nuclear warheads, perhaps to terrorist groups. And obviously this kind of corruption and incompetence has serious echoes throughout the other conflicts you describe in the book, and most poignantly, particularly the conduct of the Ukraine war this year. So was the Russian army corrupt from the, be from the beginning when it became the Russian army from the Soviet army? Yes, let's be perfectly honest, it unfortunately inherited some deeply problematic characteristics from the Soviet army before it, which was already riddled with corruption, indiscipline, criminality, and this phenomenally toxic culture of hazing called Yidovshina, grandfatherism, in which conscripts who had done more service would bully the the newly inducted conscripts and the cycle would continue. So there were already a whole variety of pathologies that were present. And then in the 1990s, when there seemed to be, there clearly was a phenomenal lack of resources, you had soldiers being withdrawn from East Germany and the like, and finding themselves with no barracks or housing for their families when they arrived, basically having to doss down in unheated tank sheds and the like. At the same time, they weren't being paid, there wasn't even the money for paying the electricity bills. In this situation, we shouldn't be surprised that in discipline and a culture of, well, look, no one cares about us, so why should we care about anything else? proliferated. And this is the time when you had you know, special forces moonlighting as gangster hitmen and everything else. So yes, this was a serious problem. And although measures have been taken to try and address some of the worst of it, I mean, Yidovshina still exists, but it's certainly much, much less pervasive, much, much less brutal, and perhaps more importantly, much less connived at by the authorities than it was in the past. But still, it's a big, serious and lengthy job to try and totally renovate the culture of an institution like the Russian military. And frankly, it's no great surprise that at best, only a partial success had been achieved. You write that Putin's views on geopolitics were shaped by the West's outrage at the way the Russian arms prosecuted the wars in Chechnya. And you say that the, he noted that the West stuck to stern words and diplomatic expressions of concern. And you say that he might have began to believe that when the West was, fa was faced with a fait accompli and a tough rebuttal, it didn't it didn't have the will to enforce its words and to really put it put its its money where its mouth was. So can you talk a bit more about what formed Putin's views on geopolitics, particularly in those early years? Sure. Well, if we want to actually pull it back, I think right right from the get go, it's clear that that Putin's views of geopolitics, quite frankly, are in my opinion pretty 
19th century. He has this notion that might makes right, that it's perfectly normal for large powerful states to impose their will upon smaller ones, that alliances and the like are really only a temporary fiction and they will only last so long as the individual members see interest therein. And essentially that international relations is pretty much a values-free zone. So these are the kind of rather sort of dog-eat-dog notions that that he brought with him into office. Now, that said, it didn't mean that he was initially predisposed to some kind of grand civilizational struggle with the West as he is now. Quite the opposite. He actually, if anything, I think underestimated the degree to which the West, however deeply imperfectly, does believe that, that values have a place. And he thought that essentially Russia would be able to strike some kind of understanding with the West, some kind of modus vivendi. And because this also took place right after the 9-11 attacks and suddenly the global war on terror was the obsession of the moment, he thought, well, no, no problem, because we're fighting our own war against jihadism in, in Chechnya. And we're perfectly willing to let you fight your war against jihadism in Afghanistan. The Russians are perfectly happy to, for example, allow the Americans to overfly in terms of supplying their forces and indeed in due course actually allow them some land access as well. No, no problem. You fight your war, we'll fight ours and we'll all be allies against these nasty jihadists. Then what happened, because if you look at the war in in Chechnya, as I said, it was a tremendously brutal one. You had the capital city, Grozny, even though, after all, it was technically a Russian city, but nonetheless leveled by aerial and artillery bombardments. All kinds of deeply worrying accounts of torture being used to extract information from prisoners or just simply to punish them for being on the wrong side, those kind of abuses. The West began to criticize them. And from his point of view, there was that kind of what the hell moment, saying, look, I'm not interfering with your war. Why are you interfering with mine? This is on on Russian soil. Therefore, it's Russia's business. So I think we quite quickly saw this this disenchantment. And in many ways, it was just simply that both sides had a very different sense of what was going on. Putin thought he had struck a deal, an implicit deal, that basically says, you have your turf, I have mine, and we let each other just do what they want. The West clearly didn't have that uh, rather brutally simple notion of what was going on. And so once that starts to unpick his early assumptions about the kind of relationship that Russia can have with the West, and once he starts to face the kind of moral opprobrium that came, he clearly begins to push back. He gets angry. He gets annoyed. He feels that why the hell are these foreigners trying to tell us how to live our lives, how to run our country and what to do? And this really sort of feeds a sort of a steady widening of the gap, which soon becomes clear in his famous speech that he gave at the Munich Security Conference, in which he actually talked about the hyper use of force by the Americans and the fact that essentially, you know, what the real problem in the world is America's desire to impose hegemony over everything. Now, one one can argue whether there's an element of truth in that or not. But the point is the way he interpreted it given his very Manichaean sense that you're either a dominant country or you are a submissive country, and that's all there is to it, meant that he was pushing back because he felt that America was trying to basically suborn Russia. So I think there was that initial moment of what seemed to be optimism and hope, but unfortunately it was one that was based on 
pretty fundamental misunderstanding of each other. And then what it created was this sense of constant threat that speaks to a, I don't want to use the word paranoia, because that immediately gets into the sense of, oh, is Putin insane? He's not, he's a rational actor. But nonetheless, he has some deeply disturbing and problematic views. And one is precisely that actually everything should be seen through this prism of countries trying to dominate others. And so when he looked at NATO expansion, when he looks at talk of European Union expansion and so forth, he sees this not in the sense of the self-determination of independent states, but in the sense of enemy alliances being built up at Russia's expense and in encroaching into Russia's self-declared sphere of influence. So I think this is something that has then become basically a, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, because the more brutish Russia became in the defense of what it regarded as its rights in its strategic neighborhood, the more neighbors actually decided that they really did want to have the kind of protections that, for example, NATO membership involved. And on that note, if we jump forward to Georgia in 2008, another kind of point of contention was the recognition you write by the West of Kosovo's secession from Serbia in 2008, just a few months before the Georgian war broke out. And you write that this really infuriated the Russians who regarded it as a, as a dangerous precedent and one which harmed a Russian ally. And the Russians began to, th to think, or Putin certainly began to think, that if the West could treat secessionist regions as real countries, then so could they. And clearly this Kosovo precedent is something that Putin is willing to use and to refer to repeatedly. We've heard a lot about it this year in Putin's rhetoric. It's something that he clearly, clear, that clearly matters a lot to him. I was just wondering if you could speak a bit about this kind of precedent and these, this idea um, on the Russian side of kind of the West as they see it, breaking the rules and then Russia responding in a similar fashion. Yes, absolutely. Again, if one looks at the case of Kosovo, this was an ethnically Albanian region of Serbia that was facing ethnic cleansing, very violent suppression by Serbian forces and irregulars. And the creation of this not entirely still today internationally recognized new nation of Kosovo was intended by the West precisely Primarily, let's be honest, there's always elements of self-interest and geopolitics at work, primarily as an expression of the self-determination of peoples, but also as an expression of the over overarching need to protect the R2P, responsibility to protect those who are facing these kind of threats. Of course, Putin, the 19th century geopolitician, sees it in very different terms. He sees it as the mask coming off. He sees this as the fact that using the pretext of wanting to support an ethnic minority facing trouble, that essentially NATO decided to redraw the map and did so not on the basis of United Nations resolutions and things, but because they just decided to do it. And this is indeed one of the pivotal moments. I think it's this, and also the UN backs, in a way, bombing campaign against Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. I think are the kind of two particularly pivotal moments which Putin demonstrated, as far as he's concerned, that we in the West are aggressive hypocrites that we talk a great talk about human rights and the like, but when it comes down to it, we, and that basically means the United States, will use violence to carry out what we want to do, and then we will find some kind of nice rationale for it. 
So yes, absolutely, in context, it both demonstrated from him, his point of view, the degree to which NATO was not just simply a defensive alliance, but wasn't it one that could just as easily pivot to active aggression. Secondly, that, as I say, this was not about human rights, this was purely about geopolitics, and that he faced a, let's be honest, much more powerful alliance. I mean, it's worth noting, after all, you know, even obviously even before the massive casualties of the Ukrainian war, European NATO, without the Americans, without the Canadians, has more, for example, ground troops than the total Russian forces let alone the technological and other qualitative edges it had. So here he is. He's facing what he sees as a, when it's unified, more powerful Western alliance, an aggressive Western alliance. And in that context, he feels that he has to play by the rules that he feels NATO is setting. Now, look, I would say he's frankly wrong in his understandings. But unfortunately, Vladimir Vladimirovich never asked me for my opinion. But nonetheless, I think this is why it's actually a very genuine sense that from this point on in particular, he is fighting what he sees as defensive operations, militarily and politically. Now, again, I say this with the big caveat that your listeners should not assume that I'm defending him in this respect. But in his mind, that's what he's doing. And so absolutely, on the one hand, Kosovo becomes the excuse for a whole variety of different operations. Georgia, it's about recognizing these breakaway states of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And in due course in Crimea, it will be, well, we are just simply reflecting the views of the Crimean people who want to be Russians. So there is an element in which this actually sort of pushes those conflicts. But on a much more overarching level, I think this is one of the points where he really feels, no, now we know what NATO really is. I suspected as much before, but now I know for sure. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And so let's get on to Crimea. So the book covers, I think, about half a dozen conflicts. Most of them, or certainly a large chunk of them, they go pretty badly for the Russians. The Russians lose the first Chechen war. They win the first, the second Chechen war, but only by, as you said, leveling Grozny and conducting themselves with extraordinary brutality against citizens that they consider their own. They won the war in Georgia, but Georgia is a tiny country with a, a at the time, relatively inefficient army. So it's not a particular surprise that a regional power was able to defeat a tiny country on its borders. And then we get to Crimea in 2014, which you write was an extraordinary military success. Of course it was. The annexation happened over the course of a few weeks with barely any bloodshed and and virtually flawlessly from the Russians' perspective. And then, of course, if you then move on in the chronology, you get to the Donbass, which didn't give the Russians a kind of decisive victory. And then eventually you get to, to the war this year, which, of course, has gone disastrously for Russia. So why was Crimea such an exception? Crimea was an exception because, in some ways, anyone would be hard-pressed to come up with a more propitious circumstances. You have a peninsula that, first of all, pretty much every Russian, whether they support Putin or loathe him, regards as rightfully Russian, and more to the point where the majority of the population also consider themselves to be Russian. This is one of the many ironies and tragedies of this conflict. There was a referendum held, but clearly it was a totally illegitimate one under the Russian gun. But even if there had been an entirely genuine, legitimate, honest vote, I have no doubt that a substantial majority would have plumped for becoming part of Russia. Because not least, they felt rightly that they had been neglected by Kyiv really ever since 1991. Then you also have the fact that this has taken place in the immediate sort of chaotic aftermath of the Revolution of Dignity in Kyiv, where in effect the Ukrainian state largely collapsed and certainly the military chain of command did. There are Ukrainian soldiers 
on Crimea, and many of these are Marines. These are tough, efficient soldiers. If they had been given the orders, they could have put up quite quite a, a fight. But the point is, they never got the orders, or they got contradictory orders, or they specifically got orders to basically stand down, stay in their barracks, and see what happens. Thirdly, this is a small operation, and therefore the Russians were able to use, frankly, their best troops. The Spetsnaz special forces, paratroopers, naval infantry, many of whom were already on Crimea because it was also the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea Fleet under a sort of an agreement with Ukraine. For all these reasons, they had the troops there. It was easy. It was, on the whole, friendly territory. The often claimed issues like the apparently terribly subtle and devious tactic of not admitting who they are and not wearing insignia on the uniforms of the people who actually moved out and took Crimea. Yes, those kind of tactics had an impact. They certainly contributed to the uncertainty and chaos you know, I remember at the time, people speculating, is this a maverick operation by the Black Sea Fleet that's not being backed by Moscow? Or are these mercenaries or whatever? In fact, though, it's hardly the first time that special forces have operated deniably and without admitting who they are. It had a role, but essentially this was a fruit that was ready to be plucked. And therefore, we, in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised that a military force, which you know, has demonstrated that it actually can get its act together, particularly when it's using its best troops, was able to carry this out just so effectively. Of course, the point is, though, that this precisely gave certain people in Moscow, and unfortunately that includes Vladimir Putin and his inner circle, an exaggerated sense of what their military can do. They looked at Crimea. They looked at the parades marching through Red Square in serried ranks and just how impressive this military looks. And given that neither Putin nor any of his closest allies have any kind of military experience whatsoever, they drew some very problematic lessons from it. Yeah, and just in terms of that kind of slight overestimation on the leadership side about the capacity of the army, I was struck in your section on, on the army as it stands. The, for example, you have a section on the Vidivir, the, the airborne forces, which I think is I don't know if I'm mischaracterizing you, so feel free to, to correct me, but it feels relatively positive about them. And you seem to, to be relatively complimentary about their capabilities. But of course, these are the guys who failed to take Hostomel Airport about five times in the early days of the war, who were who kept landing and getting killed by, by the Ukrainians in the battle for Kiev. And it strikes me that this is just an example of the disconnect between perhaps the claimed capabilities of the Russian army and its various constituent components and the reality on the ground when it face when they face a an adversary which is not much much weaker than them I'm drastically mischaracterizing you no there, there is absolutely truth in that however what we have to understand is that we can't just simply talk about military power as if it's one kind of index as if we had the trump card approach to it forces are all geared for particular environments particular operations and particular contexts and if one looks at the kind of special forces including paratroopers look special forces are powerful fast flexible but also fragile they're not designed to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with regular mechanized forces 
for any length of time. In a way, the whole idea is good, for example, like seizing a bridgehead or whatever, and then you rush to get your regular troops there in time. This was one of the key issues with Crimea, is that the Russians were, were quick to get special forces in, but then they really did have to move quickly following up to make sure that they had armor and artillery there to provide real muscle, just in case the Ukrainians had got their act together. And frankly, that there was, there was a window of opportunity in which the Ukrainians could have taken back Crimea. Now, when we come to this war, the problem is this, look, the Russian military has a phenomenally well thought through complex bureaucratic procedure, frankly, for how it prepares for wars. I'm not going to bore you or your listeners with all the detail or whatever, but they have whole approaches, which are in many ways precisely designed to, to minimize the weaknesses that they themselves know about their own forces. What was really striking, and I say this in the Ukraine chapter, is the degree to which, to put it quite glibly, Ukraine's secret weapon was Vladimir Putin that by launching this quote-unquote special military operation at such short notice, by essentially trying to run it as if you could scale up the Crimean operation and use that to take a whole country the size of Ukraine, which was a ridiculous notion. And again, it's not one which in any way the generals would have subscribed to. This was war as envisaged by a bunch of spooks who were just trying too hard to be too clever. And it has become painfully clear afterwards the degree to which actually the professional military men, the high command, were actually kept out of the decision-making process. You know, Putin micromanaged to a disastrous extent. In this case, what happened is, in a way, Russia squandered its best opportunity, but also its best troops at a very, very early stage of the war. So yes, it threw away its paratroopers, its Spetsnaz and so forth, in operations that they absolutely were not geared for. Now, that's not in any way to take away from the extraordinary prowess and performance of the Ukrainians themselves, both their regular military, but also all the various volunteers who flocked to the cause. That has been a really striking element of this war. But one of the might-have-beens is what if Putin had actually decided, yes, we're going to invade Ukraine, and then he had just simply handed the operation to his generals and allowed them to do the kind of planning and preparation that they would normally get to do? Things could have been really rather different. Just to wrap up, I'm going to ask you uh, what I'm sure you will consider an unbelievably unfair and... <laughs> <laughs> unjustified question. If this book, it's a, it's a really interesting book. I really enjoyed reading it. I think a lot of the kind of more technical military parts went slightly over my head, but I did find I, I did find myself learning a lot and, and certainly the political parts I found fascinating. But of course, you finished on this great unknown, which is probably more significant than any of the other wars put together, which is, of course, the Ukraine war. I think you finished writing in June and a lot has changed since then, and of course will continue to change. If you were to revisit this book and the kind of the lessons that the Ukraine war will have for the Russian army in a few months or perhaps a year, what do you think we'll be saying about the Ukraine war in the same way that you have conclusions about the other wars for how we understand the Russian army? Well, to be honest, look, first of all, this is a book that was originally, the, the, the manuscript was finished just two weeks before the invasion, and then it had to be tweaked and you know, a new chapter added and so forth to, to reflect that. But look, the problem is this. It's easy to be smart about wars when they're in progress and when no one is going to take you to task for the things you get wrong. The real time to, as it were, write the second edition of this will be when the war is over. Because look, 
I am of the opinion that the Ukrainians are essentially going to win. And when I say essentially, look, I think they will take back the occupied territories, except that I think Crimea remains the big imponderable. I think in it, Crimea is one area that I think, A, I think Putin probably would regard its loss as being politically existential for him, and therefore he would probably be more willing to escalate than capitulate, as he would see it on that. And B, there are ways in which actually Crimea can, can be defended. What we don't know is how long it'll take and what the costs will be. And I think these are absolutely crucial points. And the costs, primarily, I'm talking about to Russia. I do see this, I have the uh, humility to put a question mark behind it as when it's in the title of the relevant chapter. But my view is, yes, this war is basically going to be the end of Putinism. I think the costs, and I don't just simply mean economic costs, but, it, but societal, the way in which actually we can see this whole system is beginning to break down. I think for all these reasons, this will be the downfall of Putin and his attempt to create this kind of bizarre, almost democratic monarchical structure. But I don't actually think that two months, three months, five months necessarily going to make the difference. Because so often what happens is you end up being a product of the story of the moment. At present, the story has been of very impressive Ukrainian push which has seen them move from Kharkiv in the north and also putting serious pressure on the defence of Kherson in the south. Come spring, again, so much will depend on actually how effective the Russians are at degrading Ukraine's infrastructure and also turning these maybe 20,000 reservists that they have in, in, in currently in training in Russia and in Belarus and whether they can actually turn them into forces worth, worthy of the name. This is not a war which is yet at the point where we can actually see a distinct end. And so much of it will actually depend on something that is nothing to do with Ukraine, but it'll to do with the West. Putin's best chance of victory is to hold on until, as he sees it, the West in its habitual way will lose interest or lose unity. Because without the supplies of weapons, but even more importantly, money to keep the Ukrainian economy afloat, then it'll be much harder for the Ukrainians to resist. So there are still too many variables. I, I appreciate that you recognize it was an unfair question. I will likewise fail to give you a proper answer, but rather say that the time for conclusions will be when the war is over. Well, that seems like a fair response. Your book is Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And it's out on the 10th of November in the UK. Mark Elliott, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Ida Vok. Thanks for listening and until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.